You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. Peace be with you. I actually thought I had more time. (laughs) Uh, It's a pleasure to be here before you. I see a lot of familiar faces. My name's Kevin Hippolyte. Um, I'm actually from Jersey. I'm not quite Princeton, but uh, Montclair, New Jersey, it's like 20 minutes from New York City. Um, This is my wife, Kelly, up front. Kelly, wave your hand. (laughs) But as Nick mentioned last week, you know, as we preach, let's enjoy our time together in God's Word. Um, I'm so used to teaching kids, so I haven't taught adults in a long time. So um, please excuse me how I may come off. I may have you repeat after me. I may have ask you to fill in my sentences. So I expect you to be interactive, okay? Can you guys promise that? Yeah. <clears throat> so last week, uh, Pastor Nick preached on the commissioning of the 12 disciples. That was in Matthew chapter 10. So Jesus sends his disciples out to the lost sheep of Israel. You guys remember? No, I'm not going to do that. Jesus called them to have no fear. He tells them that only fear God who can destroy both body and soul. They're to have total allegiance to King Jesus. And finally, God receives them because they receive his son. So today we continue our Matthew series in Matthew chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 24. So if you're able, please rise for the reading of God's word. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 24. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked them, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news, news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? See those who wear soft clothing in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven have been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears hear. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Sharazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we'd just like to thank you for this um, just privilege and honor just to come before your word. Uh, Lord, we ask you that you may open our hearts, um, convict us, encourage us, Lord, as we open your word, Lord, um, search our hearts. You know um, what we come with today, Lord, our burdens, our doubts, our troubles, our struggles, our fears, Lord. We lay them and place them all before you, Father. Uh, Lord, please, I pray for peace for myself um, when it comes to fear. Man, Father, I just pray that we leave here changed um, and more in love with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. So before we get going, um, we have a lot to cover, but I want to share a part of my childhood with you. I'm not sure if they have uh, the comic strip up there. Do we? Cool. Anybody know where this is from? Yes, Calvin and Hobbes. So it's by Will Watterson. So this comic strip, I'll read it for you. So in the first um, strip, it says, uh, Calvin says, what grade did you get? They're in class, by the way. Susie says, I got an A. Calvin responds, really? Boy, I hate to be you. I got a C. Susie says, why on earth would you rather get a C than an A? Calvin responds, I find my life is a lot much easier. The lower I keep my expectations. <laughs> I think Calvin's on to something here. So whether we realize it or not, we all have expectations. When you come to church, you expect to do what? Hear the word and what? It's okay, you can talk, you can talk. You can <laughs> Sing, okay. When we go to the grocery store, what do we expect to be on the shelves? Food. When we go home, it's 10 p.m. if you have kids, you expect your kids to be in what? Bed. So when we go to McDonald's, and that's for McFlurry. What do we expect? The machine to be out of order. Yes. So when we go to Chick-fil-A and thank the cashier for our meal, we expect them to say, my pleasure. Don't tell me that at McDonald's, only at Chick-fil-A. My pleasure. So do you guys know one of the major causes in divorces? Money. What else? Somebody read my notes. Inf infidelity. What else? <laughs> Lack of communication, amen. So these are all the cause, but they're all based off of unmet expectations. The number one cause of um, divorce is unmet expectations. So if you guys didn't, didn't know, Kelly and I have been married for, it'll be four months in a week. Do we have a picture? We got a picture? Look at that. Isn't she beautiful? <laughs> So, so during our marriage counseling, we were encouraged to go over our expectations for our marriage. So we took some time over the week to just discuss what our expectations are. So I'm going to share with you some of my expectations 
around the house, okay? Just mine. <laughs> we, we all agree on it. We all agreed on it, though. So first expectation when it comes to the house duties is take out the trash. I did that yesterday. Laundry. Believe it or not, I like to do laundry. And when there's a, a dog-related mess, indoor or outdoor, if I'm present, I got to clean it up. All right? So let's say I decided to just take a break from my responsibilities and let the laundry pile up, the, um, the garbage pile up for a day, a week, two weeks. How would Kelly respond? Husbands, help me out. How would she respond? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> Silence. Okay, what else? What's that? Frustrated. What else? Mad. Okay, what else? Elliot. Furious. Yes. Furious. As Kelly would say, I would be ticked. So what would happen if your spouse or your roommate didn't live up to the expectations when it comes to the duties in your household. How would you feel? Frustrated? Disappointed? Let down? Ticked? So there is a, a life coach by the name of Derek Harvey. He created an equation when it comes to expectations. It is expectations minus observation equals frustration. So we have an expectation minus what we actually see and witness, and that usually leaves us frustrated. So what's that? Expectations minus equals, okay, okay. So the expectations of a Messiah, the anointed one, or Christ, was widespread among first century Jews. Depending on the Jewish group, the characteristics of the Messiah varied. Many were expecting a Davidic Messiah, from the line of King David, who would bring salvation and restoration for his people and destroy Israel's oppressors, reestablish their independence, and reign on King David's throne forever. Some expected a Moses-like deliverer. Some were cool and didn't want a Messiah at all, and they were fine with their religious leaders. So here we see some expecting a heavenly figure with superpowers, and others didn't want a Messiah at all. So in our... In our um, in our um, scripture today, we see that even John the Baptist, who is known and referred to as the herald of the Christ, he starts to question Jesus' Messiahship due to his unmet expectations. So today we'll see how our expectations affect how we relate with Christ and with others. So if we go back to our scripture, Matthew chapter 1, sorry, 11, verse 1, we see that the narrative takes place right after the servant on mission, like I mentioned last week, Nick commissioned, not Nick, Nick preached about how Jesus commissioned the 12 disciples to go out to the, um, to the Israelites and spread the, God, the gospel. So we see here in verses 2 to 3, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked them, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So let me set the scene. So John is currently in prison for rebuking King Herod for his adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. So basically, Herod takes his brother's wife, and they're now in a relationship. John calls him out on it. Now John's in prison. John is aware of what Jesus is doing um, among um, the Israelites because, probably by word of his um, disciples. So 
he starts to question and doubt Jesus' credentials. So when you're reading this, you're probably scratching your head wondering, this is a bit odd, why would John doubt now? According to the Gospel of Luke, when John was still in his mother's womb, wasn't he filled with the Spirit when they were in the presence of pregnant Virgin Mary? And remember, Matthew chapter 3, a few weeks ago, didn't John baptize Jesus because he recognized him as the anointed one? Why not question him then before you publicly baptize and anoint him as the Messiah? So what has gotten into John? Why does he doubt now? Wait, do saints even doubt at all? As saints, are, do we doubt? Does anyone here wrestle with doubt about God, the Bible, God's promises, or is that just me? Does that make us a bunch of second-rate Christians? Does this mean we have no faith at all? There is a distinction between doubt and unbelief. Theologian Alistair McGrath says this, Unbelief is a decision to live your life as there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus and all that he stands for. But doubt, doubt is something quite different. See, doubt arises within the context of faith. It is wistful longing to be sure of something that we wish to trust in. We want to trust, you know, there can't be doubt. Without, without faith, there can't be doubt. We, we doubt our faith because of what we believe in God. So in our, in our human weakness, it is natural to doubt. We are not alone in our doubt. Many champions of the faith have had their fair share of struggles. For example, who do you think I'm using as an example when it comes to doubting? Exactly, no. We're going to give Thomas a break this week. We seem to give Thomas a hard time for doubting Jesus when he um, resurrected. But throughout the whole Bible, we see doubting through all God's faithful saints. Doubting is a common place for the faithful. Doubting Abraham doubted God would make him the father of many nations. Doubting Moses doubted God would deliver the stubborn Israelites out of Egypt and for choosing him to be the one he, that would lead them. Doubted Gideon had to ask God not once, not twice, but three times for a sign to assure that he would deliver them from the hands of the Midianites. But God meets them where they are, God reassures them, and God fulfills his promises. God meets us where we are in the midst of our doubt. Isn't it sweet to know that God is patient with us and meets us in the midst of our doubt? Because I got doubts. I have worries. I have questions. But God is patient, and he meets us there. Evangelical pastor J.C. Rowell says it best. Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, God is ready to help us. Let's see how God meets John in his doubt. Let's briefly go back to Matthew chapter 3. That's when we're introduced to John in the book of Matthew to get a better understanding of what John expected from the Messiah. So in chapter 3, you can go to chapter 3 if you like. So John is in the wilderness of Judea preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is near. People from Jerusalem, Judea, and all the vicinities of Jordan, they come out to the wilderness to see John confess their sins and get baptized. And then the Sadducees and the Pharisees enter the chat. John is triggered and calls them a brood of vipers and warns them to make sure that they produce fruit that is consistent with their repentance because someone more powerful is coming, and he's coming with some heat, with fire. You, we see here John mentions fire about four, four or five times. The, the Messiah is coming to bring blessings to those who repent, 
and he's coming to bring judgment of eternal fire for those who don't. So according to the prophecy in Isaiah um, 61 verse 1, the Messiah is said to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to the, and freedom to the prisoners. Yet here in chapter 11, we see John where? In a prison cell. The Pharisees still have control over religious living. The Sadducees still have control over the temple. The Israelites are still under the reign of the Roman government. Meanwhile, Jesus, the Messiah, is among the outcasts, the marginalized, the irreligious, basically kissing babies and teaching kumbaya while John is in prison to rot. John is probably wondering, Jesus, what are you doing? When will these people get what they deserve? Where's the judgment? Where's the fire, the liberty, the freedom? Are you truly the one? Let's see how Jesus responds to John in verses 4 to 6. Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. You probably, if you were John's disciple, you probably think, okay, great, that's why we came here in the first place, Jesus. John heard what you were doing. That's why he's questioning you. But if you look closer, Jesus' response is, is significant because it echoes Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah. Let's take a look side by side with Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 and to how Jesus responded. Do we, still, do we have that? Okay, cool. So to your left, we see the prophecy of the, the coming Messiah, and to your right, you see Jesus' response. You see how they match up side by side? The eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer. The spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me because the, sorry, to bring good news to the poor. If you read the rest of this Isaiah passages, God does mention judgment. Isn't it so easy for us to focus more on what God hasn't done rather than what he's doing and what he has done? Here Jesus responds in sort of a scripture code knowing John would recognize and understand these words from Isaiah. He even adds a beatitude at the end of in his response in verse 6, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So Jesus is basically telling John, yes, I am the one. Do not be tripped up over what you expected. The kingdom is here, and trust that it is unfolding. Notice how Jesus meets John and reassures him. He points John to what? What does he point John to? Scripture, the word, to himself. In David Platt's commentary on Matthew, he says, God's word is a rock, not because it makes everything easy, but it keeps your feet out of sinking sand amid difficult situations and unmet expectations. See here, John was sinking. How many of us this morning come here feeling as if they're sinking? in their unmet expectations of God. You may be thinking, Lord, I thought I'd be much further in my career. I'm pushing 30, still trying to figure it out. Some of you parents would be like, hey, Lord, my son is 30. I thought he'd be much further in his career. <laughs> <laughs> you may be thinking, I'm sinking in debt. My relationships aren't what I thought they'd be. My marriage is sinking. My son, my daughter, they want nothing to do with me. My health is declining. This church merger isn't what I thought it would be. 
we aren't growing as, as fast as I thought we would, or we're changing too fast, or we're not changing fast enough. Lord, are you sure this is what you want? Lord, are you really for me? Jesus, are you truly with me? Where are you? In our doubts, our fears, anxieties, and unmet expectations, go to the rock. Jesus is sending you his location. Jesus is, sorry about that. Jesus is sending you his location saying, come, meet me here. Let's talk. Come to me. The Lord is your rock, your fortress, your stronghold, your strength, your deliverer. Take refuge in him. In the midst of, God, of John's doubt, Jesus still defends him. So in the midst of John's doubt, here John is doubting Jesus, and then Jesus turns around and defends him. Let's look at verses 7 to 15. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. So because of his doubt, the crowd's probably question, now questioning John's credentials for doubting Jesus. But Jesus is going to set the record straight about John. He says, what did, you go, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swing in the wind? Did they see like a fickled wimp, a pushover? As we saw in chapter 3, John is far from it. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear clothes are in royal palaces. No, you know that John lived in the wilderness. He wasn't a yes-man prophet for hire in the king's palace, and he wore 100% camel hair. Okay, that's... Got a better response than I expected. <laughs> Verse 9. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. Let's pause here for a second. There's so much to unpack here, but for the th- sake of time, uh, I know we've got to be out here by, what, 12? <laughs> um, I'm going to point to you to four details. Number one. John is a prophet. What's number one? Okay. We see that in what verse? Oh, verse nine. It says John is a prophet. Number two, Jesus, John, sorry, John is more than a prophet because he is the prophet announced in Malachi 3, verse one. Do we have Malachi 3, 1? Cool. It says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, the Lord, says the Lord of armies. So John is more than a prophet because he is the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy, the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. So number three is John is the greatest human to live. Notice how Jesus mentions, mentions this after John leaves. You would think, you know, your boy's in prison Rodden, you would kind of want to hear that kind of compliment. I'm the greatest person on earth, right? See, but when Jesus says this, he's not really talking about John. John is not great because of John. John is great because of the greatness of the one he introduced. 
the Messiah. And last, this is important, John is Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that was sent to defend God and call the Israelites to reject their false idol worshiping and return back to God. It is super important to recognize John as the Elijah figure that was to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. It is said in the Orthodox Jewish home at Passover, they leave an empty chair out, hoping that Elijah would return. The empty seat reflects the hope of the final words in the final book of the, of the Old Testament. In, in Malachi 4, verse 5, can we show that? It says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So till this day, many re- Jews reject John as the Elijah figure because they actually expect a literal Elijah to return. See, there is no death record of Elijah in the Bible. He returns to the Lord in heaven in, chari- in a chariot. So the, the Jews reject John. So they're still waiting on Elijah. See, Malachi doesn't mean a reincarnated Elijah was to come, but rather an Elijah-like figure, John, would come. If you have some time during the week, take a look at First and Second Kings. You can see how Elijah's life and John's life parallel. It's really pretty close. So take some time to check that out. Um, there's much controversy regarding the identity of this Elijah figure mentioned in Malachi chapter 4. So Muslims think this verse refers to Elijah Muhammad. So they view Elijah Muhammad as their Messiah. In Judaism, so one of their arguments for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah is because they reject John as Elijah. So John doesn't meet their expectations of the messenger so Jesus doesn't meet their expectations of the Messiah. So you no Messiah, sorry, no messenger, no Messiah. But we see in verse 14, Jesus directly states, John is Elijah. So what does this mean? When you get the messenger, you get the Messiah. Jesus is essentially proclaiming first to John, now to the crowd, I am the Messiah. So when you get the messenger, you get the I'll try it again. My kids are louder than y'all. When you get the messenger, you get the? That's better. And if you get the Messiah, the kingdom is here. And if the kingdom is here, the time for a decision is now. Next, we'll see how the people reject John and Jesus because they didn't conform to their expectations. So in verses 16 to 19, we see Jesus uses a parable of stubborn children in the marketplace to point out how the generation... In other words, the people were unsatisfied with both John and Jesus. So, question for parents, for those who serve in kids' ministry. I see a couple servants here. So what is it like to be around a child that doesn't get their way? Somebody explain that to me. We're thinking about kids soon. so When a child doesn't get their way, what's that like? Stressful. What else? Exhausting. Oh, we have a child. What's that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, dealing with unsatisfied kids can be frustrating and honestly discouraging, especially when they don't know what they want. Sometimes they want to be held, but then they cry because they want to be put back down, and then they want to be held again, and it's like, okay, <laughs> where's the babysitter? Some. Sometimes they're hungry, but they don't want to eat. They're sleepy, but they don't sleep. 
This is what Jesus is comparing the people to. They hoped for a Messiah, but denied both Jesus and John when they preached about the kingdom because it was a kingdom they weren't expecting. So in verse 18, it says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus and John presented two different types of ministries. John spoke of fasting and repentance because the kingdom of heaven was near, while Jesus came feasting and rejoicing because the kingdom of heaven is here. Regardless, the people rejected them, rejected them both because it didn't conform to their expectations. So what can we expect uh, for being a follower of Christ? As faithful followers of Christ, we will face opposition and criticism from the world. Remember in the last chapter, we read before Jesus sent them out, he said, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Everyone. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. It's like, okay, Kevin, we know that. The world's going to hate us. We know that, but do we like that? Not really. Especially now when you think about social media, where we're basically programmed to seek approval and likes from the world. If I'm being honest, I had to take a break from social media because it was a flight. It was pouring over into my real life. I'm seeking approval and affirmation from people that don't really matter to me. If there's no distinction between you and the world, you need to check who you're following. We're all being discipled by someone. Though we, we live in an upside-down world, we have an upright king. We see, you sometimes seem to mention that God's kingdom is upside-down, but it's our world that's upside-down. Our king is upright. And his upright kingdom is coming. It's in breaking. Our king wants our allegiance, so we must remain faithful. So the world may mock you, but stay upright. The world may criticize you, stay upright. The world will hate you, stay upright. Our text ends with what John expected from Jesus, and that's judgment. In um, verses 20 to 24, we see here Jesus announces the people and compares their cities to notorious pagan cities. Because of their unresponsiveness to Jesus' miracles, they've earned a more serious judgment than the pagan cities. Jesus pronounces judgment for the lack of repentance. You see here, Jesus has expectations too. He wants repentance. He wants your heart. Anybody, any um, geography buffs here? Anybody familiar with maps? Nobody? No. Anybody know where Sodom is on the map? It's not there. Why isn't it there? God got rid of it, yes. <laughs> but see here, Jesus said, if he performed his miracles in Sodom, Sodom would still be here. What does that say about these other cities? The people of Bethsaida, Sharazin, and Capernaum had experienced Jesus and had seen his power. But merely having had Jesus and his miracles in our midst does not mean we're safe doesn't equal salvation. We can experience Jesus 
every, every, every Sunday when we're here, does that mean we're safe? We can experience how he's working in people's lives, but does that mean you're saved? Jesus wants our heart. These cities were so blinded by their pride and self-righteousness. They expected keys, keys to the kingdom, but just because they experienced Jesus, they had never, sorry, they expected kings to the kingdom just because they experienced Jesus and had never seen his power. As believers, we must beware, because here when Jesus speaks of judgment, it's usually among the religious crowds. You know, he preaches um, rejoicing and hope for the down, downtrodden and the broken. But when it comes to the religious, even we saw in chapter 3 with John, they're speaking harsh, sharp words of judgment. So what does that say for us if you are a believer? We have to watch out that we don't fall in this trap. As believers, we must beware that we're not heading down this road. Our pride will lead us to a path of destruction. See, our, our weekly church attendance and participation won't save us. Keys to the church doesn't mean keys to the kingdom. I guess I, I have a key, key card to the gym. Does it mean my body's transforming? <laughs> no, seriously. Jesus wants your heart. He wants repentance. He wants transformation. He wants you. Our destiny depends on our response to him. How are you responding to Jesus? Not just today, throughout the week. For me, it could be a struggle. I grew up, I grew up in the church. I've been hearing about the gospel, Jesus dying on the cross since I was a kid. And if I'm being honest, sometimes I can come off as being unsatisfied, unimpressed. Like, okay, I know this. But Jesus is calling us to come to him and see him afresh and give us back that joy, you know. When we, remember that joy you had when you were first saved? When you first exper- experienced Jesus? That was an experience, but he wants you to experience him every day. So to close, let's recap how we saw our expectations affect the way we relate to Christ. We saw unrepentant, unrepentance. We saw unresponsiveness. We saw rejection. We saw denial. We saw doubt. So when you think about it, it was kind of doubt that caused Adam, Adam and Eve to sin in the first place, wasn't it? They questioned, did God really say we weren't supposed to eat from this tree? I struggle with this too. You, you, we struggle and wrestle with, why is God so good to me? Is he really this good? Each week in Soldier and Kids, we start off our lesson with where our lesson comes from. We tell them this is our Bible, and our, the Bible is the word of God. God cannot tell a lie. Every time we open this Bible, God is revealing himself. It's like pulling open a curtain. God's revealing himself to us. God is not like a man that he should lie. Um, that should give us hope. So Adam and Eve, acting out on their doubt, then sin entered the world, and separated us from a holy God, and we were subject to his eternal death. I remember I was teaching kids, and I, was, and I asked them, does anybody know what alienation means? <laughs> That's what you do in kids' ministry when the tough words come out. You, hey, does anybody know what some, so-and-so means? And one of the kids says, it says you're on a different planet. And that, 
that rocked me because we were alienated from God because of our sin. That's how far we were from God, as if we were on a different planet. See, as we see, God is a God of justice. And because of our sin, justice needed to be served. So while we were still helpless, at the right time, God would send his only son, Jesus, the Messiah. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for me. He died for you. Why? Because of God's love. God loves you. I'm trying not to get, uh, yeah. It's so different when you say it out loud. Um, yeah, we wrestle with it because like God's just so good. Just when you think about your sin and your life and just, just know that God loves you, it's just, I'm just going off the script right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So just want to urge you guys, to, God's love is real. When you experience God, you experience a transformed life. And I want to urge you, if you don't know him, do not leave today without giving your life to him. You could talk to me, probably Nick or Pastor, <laughs> about this. But yeah, let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.